You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We're in the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is addressed to a community of Jewish Christians. They are a community of people who have grown up with faith in the Lord and who have been raised with specific and regular practices through which to exercise their faith and to grow in their relationship with God. But through this letter, or this sermon written in the form of a letter, the writer is seeking to illustrate two things to this community. The first is how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel ever learned and was taught to anticipate. And secondly, because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they, were, they learned and were taught to anticipate, therefore the way of Jesus is superior, better than all of their former traditions and practices that they were raised on. And it's not, as we've seen, as we've gone through this book so far, it's not that the Old Covenant, as it was called, their former way of ex- exercising their faith in God, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple, it's not that those things were pointless or bad, It's just all of those things were intended to point to Christ. They were temporary. They were symbolic, serving to give a picture for recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, as our great high priest. They were given as a way for better understanding what Jesus has done, what Jesus continues to do for us as our Lord and Savior. If you weren't with us last week, we started chapter 9, and in that first part, we were focused on the building and the specific layout of something known as the tabernacle, later known as the temple when it was in Jerusalem. Together we learned how this structure, which housed the localization of God's presence among the Israelites, anticipated, looked ahead to the end of our long-distance relationship with God, as with the coming of Christ, God would make his home, ultimately through the Holy Spirit, in us. Thanks to Jesus, our God is not far from us, but as close as our next breath. And the tabernacle, the temple of, that once stood, is now we are the temple of God's Spirit. His presence is in all of us who belong to and who follow Jesus Christ. Today, as we continue on in chapter 9, we're going to reflect on yet another part of the human condition that Jesus attends to. Something that the writer actually briefly mentioned in our passage last week, but as you're going to hear, is going to repeat it again. Today, we are going to consider the work of Christ as it impacts one of the more challenging aspects of our humanity, the human conscience. With that, just a couple of verses this morning, let's dive into Hebrews chapter 9. It reads, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
We're going to talk about three things today. First, we're going to talk about what a biblical understanding of the human conscience is. Second, we're going to talk about how exactly the work Jesus does for us cleanses or clears our conscience. And third, we're going to talk about what that means. What does it look like to live with a clear conscience thanks to Christ? So let's start with talking about the human conscience. While it's not something that we can see or analyze, the idea of each of us possessing a conscience somewhere in our brains can be found in almost every human culture. We each have a conscience. And biblically, we understand the conscience as part of our God-given faculties. Our conscience is our critical internal compass that bears witness to our thoughts and our behaviors and then evaluates them in terms of whatever norms and values we have in determining what is right and wrong. To be more specific, my conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard I know and then continually reminds me of what that standard demands that I do. I hope I'm trying to underscore something there and repeating this twice, so let me tr- continue to try to make it clear. We need to understand biblically, while we have a conscience, and having a conscience is a gift from God, how our conscience is configured can be self-determined apart from God. The Bible's clear. In Romans, as you'll see right there, our creator has put knowledge of himself and his standards in terms of what is right and wrong in each person. Nonetheless, in our separation from our creator, because of our rejection and our rebellion against God, the Bible is also clear that we can sear or corrupt our conscience to our likings and our preferences. And the truth is, if you think about it, our conscience, your conscience and mine, is shaped by the families we grew up with. Our conscience is shaped by whatever we learned in school. Our conscience is shaped by the company we keep. Our conscience is shaped by our life circumstances. And then in the midst of all of that, we all have a tendency, each one of us, to design our values and our norms based upon what we want to accomplish in life. And this explains, by the way, why everyone's conscience can be different. We often say sometimes, referring to another person, that person has no conscience. But that's really not a true statement. It's not that that person doesn't have a a conscience. It's just that everyone's conscience can reflect different norms and values. And herein lies the problem, biblically. This diversity in terms of the human conscience Our varying standards of what is right and what is wrong is not a sign of our strength as humanity, but of our weakness, our brokenness as human beings. See, and this is where it breaks down. Contrary to what we often think, our conscience is not the means by which we tell what is right and what is wrong. Many of us, when we think of the conscience, think of Jiminy Cricket sitting on our shoulder. But biblically, our conscience is not the means by which we tell what is right and what is wrong. Our conscience is the means by which we have decided what is right or wrong. That's very, very different. And and why that's important, and, and we need to hear this because this is being lost, is our conscience cannot and should not be our final ethical authority. You'll hear a lot, oh, just follow your conscience. The Bible says do not just follow your conscience. Our conscience cannot be, should not be, our final ethical authority because the human conscience, apart from God, is fallible. It is changeable. 
Our conscience, again, is trained by what we experience, by what we've been taught, by what we choose to believe. And therefore, our conscience shifts as our opinions and our values change. As someone once remarked, the human conscience tends to excuse when it ought to accuse and likewise accuse when it ought to excuse. Some of us, what I mean is, have a hyperactive conscience. You know who you are that repeatedly accuses us based on an expectation or a standard that is unrealistic. And others of us have an immature conscience that rationalizes or justifies thoughts and actions that are harmful to us or harmful to those around us. And that's why biblically, our conscience must be primarily informed by the revelation of God. This means that what defines the standard of what is right and what is wrong, what ultimately shapes the norms and values we live by, must derive ultimately from what the Lord teaches us through his word. It must derive from the example, the witness of the life of Jesus Christ. It must derive from the witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is so important to lay this foundation because more and more, not even out in the world, but in the church, more and more people, Christians, reverse this order, attempt to reverse this order. What I mean by that is many, many people, including Christians, seek to use their conscience to judge God and God's rules for living. Statements like this, I could not worship a God who would say or judge that what I believe or what I am doing is wrong are appeals to conscience over and above the revelation of God. You're ultimately saying that, you're, that God is subject to be judged by your conscience rather than your conscience is judged by the Lord. And that is a complete reversal of what the Bible's understanding of how this works. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this tension, in the midst of this confusion, despite all our attempts to reprogram and manipulate the human conscience to our liking and preferences, apart from what God has laid out for us, despite all of that, the thing is no one has ever fully erased the base code that God writes into our spiritual DNA. Even people who attempt to prove there is no such thing as right or wrong end up being confounded as their insistence that they are right and you should agree with them and if you don't, you're wrong violates the very foundation of their argument. Because the minute that I argue there are no absolutes, I have just disproved my own argument by making an absolute statement. Something important to understand in the midst of all this. When we talk about sin, our brokenness, what makes something a sin is not being out of alignment. What makes something a sin is not because it's out of alignment with our norms and values. Sometimes we'll say, well, I, you know, my conscience doesn't bother me, so therefore it's not a sin. What makes something a sin is not because it's out of line with our norms and values. What makes something wrong, a sin, part of our brokenness, is when we choose our will over God's will. What makes something a sin, what's an expression of our brokenness, is, we, is when we shape our norms and values rather than let God shape them. And the thing is, again, try as we may to assert in the midst of that tension that all morals and ethics are relative and arbitrary. Everyone possesses that God-given sense that we ought to do certain things and not others. That God-given sense Whatever fraction of it remains in our conscience, having worked it over, 
reacts subconsciously, right? It reacts under our knowledge, pinging us internally before we do something, right? Nagging us, prodding us. And then after the fact, after we've done it, either approving, accusing, or excusing what we've done. We've all of us, in the midst of this debate that we're having here, in this conversation, we all of us have done stuff that we should have not done. We've all done th- we have all not done things that we should have done. We have all felt ways we ought not to have felt. And that realization of our failure to do what we ought to have done, to do what is right, is what is known as guilt. And guilt is a universal experience. Guilt is a universal experience because none of us have a clear conscience. Everybody has made wrong choices, sometimes costly, sometimes embarrassing, sometimes painful, sometimes very insignificant. But all of us have made wrong choices. All of us bear a guilty conscience in some way. And if you have a guilty conscience, if you're carrying guilt right now, a guilty conscience is a hard and painful master. Our guilt can keep us awake at night, costing us sleep. Our guilt can eat at our memories, torment our minds, drive us mad. Our guilt, left untreated, inevitably turns to something worse. It turns to shame. Whereas our guilt is tied to something we did wrong, shame now becomes tied to our sense of self. When our guilt turns into shame, It's no longer I did something bad. It's now I am bad. It's not I made a mistake. It's I am a mistake. Shame is the scar born of the wound of untreated guilt. And shame is so so devastating because it leads us to believe we are unworthy of love. We are unworthy of belonging. And my friends, too many people carry the burden of guilt and shame. Too many of us carry a conscience that is not clear, but actually is compromised. And on our own, apart from God, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with guilt and shame? The answer is easy. On our own, all we can do is manage our guilt. We try to manage our guilt. We try to make up for our guilt. We try to do anything we can to cover it over. But there is nothing we can do in all of our attempts to manage or to make up for our guilt. There's nothing we can do to free ourselves from our guilty conscience. It just sits there. And again, untreated becomes shame, shame that becomes like a cancer within us. And what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand is just because there's nothing we can do to free ourselves from our guilty conscience, that doesn't mean that nothing can be done about our guilty conscience. But he's in these just brief verses we've looked at in chapter nine, he's gonna come back to this again. What he wants us to understand is Jesus, through the work he has done for us, as he points towards the cross, Jesus has cleared, has cleansed our conscience. Now, this sounds great. And we often say this in the church. We've grown up with this. We just say it as matter-of-factly. Jesus died and cleansed my, forgave me of my sins. I'm set free because Jesus died on the cross for me. And we just say that. And we often say it to people who aren't part of our faith. And we act like it's just self-evident how this leads to that. How Jesus dying on the cross somehow sets you free. Like it's obvious. And it's not obvious. It's not readily apparent how Jesus dying on the cross somehow clears our conscience, takes away all that guilt and all that shame. So we want to talk about that. How exactly does that work? When we say that, what is the Bible telling us? How does Jesus dying on the cross result in our conscience being made clean, being made clear? 
And Hebrews, this is why Hebrews is such an important book of the Bible, because what Hebrews does is it helps us to understand the foundation that was laid before, back in Exodus and Leviticus. And remember what we've learned so far, what the old covenant, the former way of doing things with the priesthood, the offerings and the sacrifices, what it taught us was something very, very fundamental, that sin, our rejection and our rebellion against our creator draws blood. Sin takes life from us. And that's, that's something we don't necessarily fully understand at first, the implications of how costly sin is. But Hebrews is pointing back to say, we learn sin takes life from us. It draws blood. And, and, and I want this to sink in again for a second, because in one way or another, we need to understand this, how big the problem of sin is. In one way or another, when we do our own thing, either individually or as a group, whenever we operate independently of God, someone else, some other group gets left out compromised, or worse, abused and violated in some way. And we don't just need to look to the Bible to tell us this. Human history is replete with examples of the truth of the fact of the problem of sin. That when we operate independently by ourselves, independently of God or as a group, someone or some other group gets compromised, left out, or violated. Human history is replete with examples that this is true. We don't like to talk about it. But the reality is, when we look at history, every advancement in human civilization, every advancement in human civilization, the rise of every great nation, including this one, has been built on the backs and the misfortune of another culture, another race, another ethnicity or tribe. This is getting talked about more and more, and it's interesting to see the generational divide. More and more young people are trying to articulate this, and more and more of us who are older get hot and bothered by it. But really what they're articulating is the problem of sin. What I just said, many people who are younger than us are trying to have this conversation, recognizing this. If we belong to one of the dominant groups in society, racially, socioeconomically, or in terms of our gender, we gain an inherent benefit, an advantage, or a privilege that those who do not belong to that dominant or majority group do not receive. That is a reflection of the problem of sin. But many of us get hot and bothered. Oh, I don't have privilege. I don't have advantage. That's, but the reality is, and this is the, the representation of our brokenness, it's not equal. It's not equal. There are the haves and the have-nots. There are those who are in the majority and those who are in the minority. And by the very nature of those labels, things change. Things change. And that's a reflection of the problem of sin. To put this another way, to make it just about the individual when I become the center of the universe, when the world revolves around me and I take the place of God, then someone has to serve me. Somebody has to bow down to my will. That's the problem of sin. And what we see is that sin draws blood. Sin takes life. And so what we also see, is since the cost of sin is blood taking life, Take the, the means of, care, of addressing the problem of sin is the giving of life. Life taken, life must be given. But here's the problem. Our lives already belong to God. The life we have is life we've been given by God, so it already belongs to God. Therefore, giving our lives to God won't work because we can't give back what we already owe. And our death is the consequence of our sin, of our separation from God, our rejection and rebellion against God. Therefore, our death can't be an offering for our sin. 
Because we can't give God to something that we already owe, that was his in the first place, that wasn't ours to take and claim as our own. But even more than this, what we learn from the old covenant, what we learn through Hebrews, is that atonement isn't just about making amends. Atonement isn't just about making up for what was lost. Oh, let me fix it and make it all pretty again. No. Atonement is also about taking responsibility for making things right. Not just addressing the damage, but resetting everything, creating a new possibility, a reality that is not defined by the damage of the past, by what went wrong. And that's not something we're capable of doing. Something important here, something that we miss. We often talk about that this, the cross, is about the forgiveness of our sins, as if somehow forgiveness happened only when the cross came into existence. And something that we miss is that forgiveness was part of the old covenant. Through the Levitical sacrificial system, the people had a means to confess their sin before God and to receive his forgiveness. The problem, what all the blood of bulls and goats and all those repeated sacrifices could not accomplish was not forgiveness, that was there. What they could not accomplish was salvation or as the writer calls it, eternal redemption. Forgiveness was always there, but going beyond forgiveness to resurrection, to go beyond something, beyond sin and death, that could never be provided by the sacrificial system. But it could, and it would be provided by God coming down in Jesus Christ. The debt we owe for all we've taken, but we can't repay, Jesus covers. Being innocent, being blameless, not needing to make sacrifices for his own sins, Jesus, in willingly giving his life for ours, in becoming the death we deserve, offers what he doesn't owe. And therefore, Jesus, in offering his perfect life, gives infinitely more than we have taken away through our sin. And that burden that we can't bear for making everything right, Jesus bears for the sake of making all things new. Jesus places on heaven's altar the deepest possible sacrifice, his pure, innocent life, bearing the full weight of the pain, the suffering, the evil, all the sin and the brokenness of our human condition. This is what he willingly embraces on the cross. All that is wrong with us placed on his shoulders and everything that is right and good, which he is given to us. And as a result, Jesus achieves, as the writer of Hebrews will say again and again, in this once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus accomplishes what all the other sacrifices could only point to, but what they could never achieve. Jesus saves us. Jesus redeems us completely. And the assurance, by the way, of that eternal redemption, the sign that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is not just some passing thing that needs to be repeated again and again like the sacrifices of old, but the sign that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is the very thing that changes everything forever is Jesus's resurrection from the dead. It's not just about the cross. It's about the cross and the resurrection. That's the gospel. Because when death, the ultimate consequence of our rejection and rebellion against God is conquered, new possibilities emerge for us. Our lives no longer have to be defined by our failures, our mistakes, our brokenness, 
our separation from God. Our lives can be reborn. Both our present and our future can be rewritten. Our conscience can become clear in Jesus Christ. Because when we are in Christ, there is nothing left on us. In Christ, through confession, there is no residue or buildup from our past left. There is no stain that will not come out. In Christ, through our repentance, there is no break that can't be reconciled. There is no loss that cannot be redeemed. There is no death from which we cannot be resurrected. In Christ, there need be no more guilt, no more shame, no more fear over our mistakes, our imperfections, and our failures. They don't need to repeatedly hang over us and haunt us. That's the gospel. The question is, in light of this passage, is is your conscience clear in Christ? Or are you here today and your conscience is still bothering you? Is Is our conscience nagging in us, maybe even still keeping us up at night? For some of us, that struggle with our conscience is a struggle that, to align our conscience with Christ in the first place. To align our conscience with Christ in the first place. To let our conscience be captive to Christ. What I'm talking about is some of us here profess belief in Jesus. We say we follow Jesus. But truth be told, and only you know this, you profess faith in Jesus, you say you follow Jesus, but truth be told, you're actually doing your own thing. You're going your own way. Your conscience, what you value, what your norms are that you hold are being shaped less by Jesus and more by other priorities, what the Bible calls idols. Your norms and values are being shaped less by Jesus and more by people or things around you that are in charge of the decisions and actions that you take. Here's the question, and again, for you to to chew on in the silence of your own heart, as you sit here today, who or what defines what is right or wrong for you? Is it you? Do you define what's right and wrong? Or does he? And as you think, and then many of us initially go, of course, course, I, I don't decide what's right and wrong. I look to God for what's right and wrong. Before we answer too quickly on this one, pay attention to your habits. Because our habits matter. Habits, as we know, are developed by performing an action repeatedly over time until it becomes an automatic reflex. And the thing is, we can say that we look to God for what's right and wrong, but practically in terms of our lives, rejecting God's authority can become a habit. Saying, when we say statements like, well, I can't believe in a God who would say that this, what I believe or what I think is wrong, is the habit of making your conscience lord over God. And that rejection of God's authority can become a habit. Continually rebelling against the Lord's direction and living according to our own rules for life rather than him can become an automatic reflex where we're not even conscious that we're doing it. We don't even realize when our conscience is the judge of God rather than God is the judge of our conscience that the God we're actually worshiping isn't the God we know in Jesus Christ, but it's the God that we've created in our own image. We need to hear this because Jesus gives us a clear conscience, but the Bible is clear that even in the midst of that reality, the habit of sin can sear the conscience that has been cleared in Christ. This is because 
Having a clear conscience in Christ, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, having a clear conscience in Christ isn't a matter of a transaction, some exchange that Jesus does for us on the cross. And that's often how we talk about it. Jesus dies for us on the cross and says, your conscience is a mess. Here, take mine. Here's, my, here's, your, here's your clear conscience. This isn't about some transaction. The idea of Jesus clearing our conscience isn't some gift exchange. Having a clear conscience isn't a matter of a transaction. Having a clear conscience is about embracing a relationship with the God who seeks to continue to shape and transform our lives. And so we ask these questions, right? Guys, is God's word a daily, regular source of wisdom and truth for us? Or are we treating the Bible more like a fortune cookie? Cracking it open every once in a while for a quick verse or two of inspiration or encouragement? Are we following Jesus? And I mean that, following him, not just following the church on Sunday. Are we following Jesus every day of our lives, looking to learn from his example, looking to learn how to engage and interact with the world, with others like he did? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and empower us, allowing the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to us daily, allowing the Holy Spirit every day to remind us of who we are and whose we are, or are we living out of our own strength and power? Our habits matter. But I also want to be clear. It's still Jesus who clears our conscience. It's Jesus in his relationship with us that sets our hearts and minds free. The habits that I've just outlined, the practices we've just been talking about, are the result of a clear conscience. They are not the means by which we clear our conscience. I want you to hear that again, and I'll, it'll be clear why in a second. The habits, the, the practices we've just talked about are the result of a clear conscience. They are not the means by which we clear our conscience. And this is so important for us to understand because while some of us here today are struggling with aligning our conscience with Christ, there are others of us who have a different problem altogether. Others of us are trying to clear our conscience by doing things for Christ doing things for Jesus. If you read this passage carefully, this letter as a whole, the original audience to who this was written, they weren't struggling with a troubled conscience because of sinful deeds. As the slide comes up on the screen, they were struggling with a troubled conscience because of acts that lead to death. They were struggling with a troubled conscience because of dead works. Let me break this down. The readers of this letter were Christians like us, who professed to believe in Jesus, believe in all that Christ had done for them, and yet apparently they were still persisting in trying to put their conscience to rest by continuing to make offerings and sacrifices at the temple. Those are the dead works that are being referred here. All the religious activity these Christians were doing in order to ease their troubled conscience. What the author is telling them and us is not only is this unnecessary, it remains entirely ineffective. And yet, can you relate? Are any of us here today still trying to put our conscience to rest by attempting to do good things for God? Is there something in your past, some specific sin, some previous mistake, failure, wrongdoing, which you keep laboring to make amends for? Is your relationship with Jesus marked by a lot of religious activity, trying to do what is good, trying to do what is right in order to try and please God? 
Is your life marked by a lot of religious activity, trying to do what is good, trying to do what is right, to please God, and yet simultaneously are you also preoccupied with thoughts of whatever, of, of whatever it is that you're doing? Is it enough? Wondering after a while if you're actually measuring up, maybe even going to the place of asking if you're enough? Because living our lives out of that posture of never enough, of not doing enough, of not being enough, is a prison. It's a prison that makes it nearly impossible to enjoy each day. It makes it nearly impossible to be free to just be, as the slide on the screen will show you. It makes it impossible to enjoy our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with one another. Are you living in this self-made prison? Is freedom from guilt and shame so foreign to you that as soon as it happens, as soon as you get a little bit of freedom from guilt and shame, you start feeling guilty for not being guilty. Yeah, right? Too many of us exist in this space where we remain so focused on our guilt and shame despite what Christ has done and forgetting what Jesus continues to do for us. For centuries, we have established that Christianity, we have practiced, despite what the Bible proclaims, we have created a religion based on guilt and shame. Some of you, this is your relationship with God, that you think your relationship with God is about guilt and shame. And I hope that you are hearing, and I hope that your ears and your heart and your mind get open to the fact that this is wrong. And I want to give you an example of how entrenched this is in our own faith wrongly. How many of you came to faith through this simple picture? It's the picture of you on one side and God on the other side. And in between is this great chasm caused by sin. And the story that goes with this picture, if you've never heard it, is that we are separated from God by sin. Because of the problem of sin, we can't get to God. And because of the pollution of sin, God can't come to us or we will die. God can't bear to be near us because being a holy God, God can't possibly get close to our sin, oh, our imperfections, our unholiness. This is how we're taught to think about our relationship with God. It even extends in terms of the cross. We're told that when Jesus took upon the sins of the world, God abandoned him because God can't look upon sin. And yet, thanks to Jesus, on the cross, a bridge is built so that we can cross the chasm and we can be reunited with God. Beloved, hear me. Sin doesn't create a chasm between God and us. The God who came to us in Jesus Christ became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's not Pastor Chris, that's Scripture. God became sin, which he can't look upon, which he can't be. God became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. Sin doesn't create a chasm between us and God. Sin causes a huge disconnect between who we are and who God meant us to be. And the cross is not our means to get to God, as if God waits on the other side for us to get our act together. No, God comes to where we are. That's the whole point. That's the story of the incarnation. That's the story of the gospel. Our Father creates a way in coming to where we are in order to make us not only aware of our sin, of the chasm that stands before who we are and who we were meant to become, but he comes over to the other side to provide from that other side our way to deal with it. He brings us across that chasm. 
The cross is our assurance that our God is with us until the bitter end, that our God leads us beyond the veil and the smoke that blinds us to his presence. Where is God when we sin? God is exactly where we left him in the very beginning in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, God didn't run and go, whoa, unclean, unclean. He said, where are you? He put clothes on them. Where is God when we sin? Exactly where we left him, in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our brokenness. He is here. He is in the unafraid of our disobedience. He is willing to embrace us as we are, to clear our conscience so that we can be set free and transformed if we would but listen once again, if we would but trust and follow him. And the cross is the place from which God leads us from where we are, dead in our sins, to where we were always intended to be, cleansed from our sin, resurrected from death, and with him to become what we were always created to be, holy as he is holy. God comes to us in Christ where we are and in standing with us, alongside us, going before us, through Jesus says, I am making you holy. I am teaching you to walk with me. I am giving you what you need to be in relationship with me. Follow me. Take my hand. That's the gospel, people. And yet some of us here today have still convinced ourselves we stand better with God if we live in a perpetual state of guilt and shame. This is not of the Lord. This is not the gospel. If you're feeling guilty all the time, if you think that somehow you are drawing closer to God by believing you're just not enough, then the truth is, if you're just guilty of being guilty all the time and just continue to believe you're not enough, the truth is, and this is a hard truth, you're obsessed with yourself rather than focused on Jesus. If you're trying to pay Jesus back to do your fair share, again, another hard word. If you're trying to pay Jesus back, you're trying to do your fair share, you're trying to prove and do good things for God, Here's the thing, your hope isn't in Christ, your hope is in yourself. And again, that's a prison. It takes, it doesn't give. Too many of us choose to live in the shadow of our past rather than the light of the future we can have in Christ. We are so practiced in using guilt and shame as our motivations for living, we honestly can't imagine living any other way. I'm looking at some of you right now, and some of you right now have this look that's somewhere between excited and totally lost. Because you can't imagine what your life would look like if it wasn't somehow, some way, let alone primarily, motivated by guilt and shame. And the thing is, this is exactly what the gospel invites us to imagine. The gospel invites us to imagine what our lives would look like if they were no longer lived out of guilt and shame. Can you imagine that? Imagine that. Imagine going forward from today, right here, right now. Imagine going forward from today for the rest of your life, not worrying anymore about doing enough, about being enough. Imagine that. Imagine seeking to do good, trying to live rightly. Yes, not to prove yourself, not to make yourself feel better, not to earn someone else's approval, but imagine doing good, trying to live rightly, not because you have to, but because you want to. Imagine, imagine serving God 
not out of a sense of duty. Imagine serving God out of sheer delight. Imagine serving God out of the sheer delight of knowing you are loved, trusting you have been forgiven, believing your life is being redeemed, anticipating and not fearing what lies on the other side of the horizon beyond death. Can you imagine that? And as you imagine it, how much space, how much energy, how much time would open up in your life if you stopped living out of guilt and shame? How much envy and jealousy, how much unforgiveness and bitterness, how much anxiety and stress that you're carrying would decrease within you if you stopped living out of guilt and shame. Imagine if we were free of all the guilt and shame that we insist on carrying, how much more love and gratitude would we have to share with each other? Imagine that. My friends, the good news is we don't have to just imagine it. We don't have to just imagine what our lives would look like, what they would feel like without being driven by guilt or shame. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we have been given a clear conscience. All that's left for us to start doing is living the life that results from our forgiveness, from our redemption in Christ. Why aren't we living it? Isn't that the life you've always wanted? Isn't that the life you've always hoped for? All that stands in your way is you, nothing else. All that's left is for us to just fall on our knees and say, Lord, lead the way. Spirit, reign in me. Jesus, my eyes are on you and only you. All that's left for us is to start living the life that we have been given, living the life that results from the forgiveness and redemption that are already ours in Christ. So beloved, Let's do it. Let's stop managing our guilt and shame. Stop managing your guilt and shame. Put it down. Stop ignoring your conscience or worse, rewiring it. Let your conscience be taken captive by Christ. Let us through the Holy Spirit, us together through the Holy Spirit, live out of this freedom, live out of the fresh start, the clear conscience we have been given in Christ. Amen. Amen.